Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Today is the day we start the Exodus with Moses. And what you will see, and I hope you see it, we couldn't have started it on a better day. Because what you'll see in the text corresponds to what's going on. It'll blow you away, blew me away, and I thought, wow, you know, when I plan these things out and stuff, I don't think about, you know, I'm going to do it on, it just, it just goes out and God's providence takes control of that. So I want you to hear the message today and relate it to what you just heard from me, okay? So let's turn to our Bibles and turn to the Word of God that gives us the peace and comfort and the strength that we need in our evil days. This is in Exodus in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 22, and the title of the message is, When It Is Time to Resist. Let's start out by reading verse 1. These are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So what this text is doing, what Moses is doing, is linking the end of Genesis, the patriarchal period, to now the Exodus period with the nation of Israel. So this is a link in the text. Now... Understand that when Joseph died, he was 110 years old. They came and lived in Egypt for years because of the famine that had started in the land, and they moved there, and Joseph moved all of the Israelites, which was only 70 at that time, in the land of Goshen. And if you recall, so I'm doing some refresher about Joseph so we can understand the length with Joseph because it plays into our context. And if you look in verse 7, it says, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. Shows that God's blessing was upon them and that they're obeying the dominion mandate in this area. And they multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land, and we're talking about a specific land called Goshen in the land of Egypt, was filled with them. So, again, remember... If you remember the story of Joseph, he was put second in command. There was no one higher than Joseph other than Pharaoh, if you recall. He was second in command. He saved Egypt, if you recall, from a devastating famine of the land, if you recall that. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But the land of Goshen, obviously, is this green patch from a satellite view of Egypt. And this is where the Nile turns into a delta and fingers out from there. So this is the land of Goshen, very fertile area even to this day. This is a picture of the Fertile Crescent, and there's a lot of farming areas. Well, anyway, archaeologically, what we're talking about in specific, okay, you got Goshen, but specifically, this little patch of area, this is an archaeological recreation, this little patch of area is called Avaris. And this is where the Israelites settled with Joseph. It's Avaris. Today, the modern term is called Ramses. The original name is Havaris. Let me show you from an archaeological standpoint. Avaris is below Ramses. And so Avaris is where they found a lot of archaeological remains that are absolutely fascinating about Joseph. And I want to focus on Joseph just a little bit, okay? Joseph's the link to 
the Israelites being in Egypt, okay? And you remember that he saved his family. They came there, and this is where, because Joseph had favor from Pharaoh in interpreting his dreams and saving Egypt, he allowed the Israelites to stay there in Avaris and prosper and grow. And so your Bible will call this area Ramses, but it's Avaris. And it's not an error. What the writer Moses is doing is putting the modern name on the old place, if that makes sense. So that his contemporaries that are reading it will understand the contemporary name, Ramesses, but the old name is Avaris when Joseph was there, if that makes sense. So an archaeological recreation of Avaris looks like this. This is Pharaoh's palace, obviously, there in Avaris. Now, a lot of times people, when they hear about Egypt and they hear about Joseph and they hear about Moses, the way the movies portray it and the way even it looks in books, they'll always put them in the back of pyramids and it's sandy and there's, it's just a desert. That's not what was happening. They were in Goshen, a very fertile area, very green. The Nile branched out. There's a recreation. This is what it would have looked like. The time of Moses and even the time of Joseph, this is what it looked like. This is an archaeological reconstruction of Avaris. But notice the types of buildings. They are not Egyptian that they've found there archaeologically. That's Semitic buildings. That comes from northern Syria. And the Semitic buildings, you see these squares with the tops on the roof. That's totally Semitic. That is not Egyptian. That's not how Egyptians built things. But anyway, when you start seeing the archaeological remains... It starts bringing a better picture to understand what's happening here, why the Israelites grew so much, because it's a land of plenty. There's fertility as far as water and agriculture and animals. And so Israel thrived under this condition. This is a picture of a palace, another palace. It's a smaller palace, but it is a palace. It's second to Pharaoh. And in Avaris, they have found the remains of this palace. And it is very interesting if you look at this building, it is Semitic in nature. It is not Egyptian in nature, in its architect. It is very Semitic. In fact, there was an earlier building there that was this palace was built over it. And very interesting enough that all through this palace, there are 12 pillars everywhere. So the first set of pillars you see there, are, there's 12. When you take all the archaeology off, there's 12. In the back there, there's 12 pillars as well. There's a main audience chamber, and there's a room for whoever is there. And then there's two additional rooms built onto it that are identical. And I think, in fact, this first picture right here, you're seeing the two identical rooms. There's this, you see how the roof is, has two, it's split in half? There's a two apartment types of buildings attached to it. What archaeologists say is you're looking at the palace of Joseph. He had how many sons? There are two apartments built onto it for his son's wives and him and their, the sons. There are 12 pillars, and it's Semitic in nature. There's a main audience chamber. It is a second palace. It's not as big as Pharaoh's, but it is a palace nonetheless. Also, what they have found is next to the palace is a courtyard, and you can see the numbers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and then obviously the last one is twelve. There's twelve everywhere in this palace. These are tombs. There's twelve tombs. And it says Joseph died when he's 110. They guesstimate or estimate that Joseph was the last of the twelve sons of Israel to survive, and he was the last one to die. 
So it's curious that you have 12 tombs, which represent the patriarchs, the 12, tri- the 12 sons of Jacob, and their tombs are there as well. And the last one is 12, is Joseph's. Notice the 12th tomb in Avaris is a pyramid shape. It's not like the other tombs that you saw that have a rounded top. Only pharaohs had pyramids for their monuments. Are you following me? But this is a smaller monument. It's a smaller pyramid, but it's in a palace of a Semitic individual with, 12 other, with 11 other tombs there as well. Only pharaohs had pyramids. Joseph was the second highest in Egypt, right? And yet, this tomb could signal that someone very high-ranking, maybe second to Egypt, was buried there. Let's go inside the tomb. When they did archaeological diggings in this tomb in Avaris, this is the one item they found. It's obviously a, a statue. It's a sculpture of the individual that was in the tomb, right? Notice the hair. It is not Egyptian hair. It is a mushroom cut, which is a very Semitic, in that time period, way of wearing your hair. It's a mushroom cut. And in this statue, the eyes have been gouged out and the face has been defaced a little bit. Let me show you the next picture. So you have the statue, the face broken off, the eyes were gouged out. But then part of the shoulder was attached to it. You can faintly see on the shoulder, there's a strap that goes across, which shepherds wore. And then you can faintly see the lines, but when they they bring out the colors in the coat of the individual, you can see the colors right there of what the coat looked like of this individual. When they bring out the pigmentation of what it would have looked like when it was painted, they find the pigmentation that the individual up there on the top right-hand corner had red hair, which is non-Egyptian. That's Semitic. He had red hair. And the coloring of his face, the pigment they used for his face was yellow. Egyptians were typically darker. But this individual has red hair and he's lighter skinned, which they only had the pigment yellow to represent lighter skin. The individual is not wearing anything related to an Egyptian costume. He's wearing Semitic. His his outline features are Semitic. His colors are Semitic. Red hair? There's another person in the Bible that had red hair and he's real famous. You remember who had red hair? David. David was ruddy. Remember that? He had red hair. This is a recreation of what the original statue looked like in this pyramid tomb. He's wearing a coat, his red hair, and he's fair complected. He's wearing a mushroom cut, which is Semitic. There's no identification that he's Egyptian. He is definitely Semitic, but yet he's Semitic and he's second in command. He has a pyramid structure for his tomb. Folks, what you are possibly looking at is Joseph. You're looking at the tomb of Joseph. And guess what's very interesting in this tomb? There's no bones. See, grave robbers, when they go into tombs, this is why a lot of the pharaoh's bodies were left, but the grave robbers would go into the pharaoh's tombs and steal all the wealth in the tombs, right? What are you going to do with the bones? You don't want bones, so they would just leave the pharaoh's body. That's why we have all these mummies of pharaohs 
left after, right? And nonetheless, in this tomb, the bones are gone. Why in this tomb of this Semitic person who's high-ranking are his bones gone? Do you know why? I think you do. Do you remember what Joseph told me on his deathbed what he wanted? When you guys go back into the land of Egypt, take my body and bury it in the promised land. Take my bones. And Moses made sure that happened. That's why in this particular tomb, maybe, why there's no bones. Why it's a Semitic individual with red hair. Wow. Now, something very interesting that they've also discovered about Joseph. Let's go to the next slide. This is Egypt from atop, okay? This is a satellite view. Interesting enough, you remember what Joseph did. He saved Egypt from a famine, right? And that's why he got promoted the highest. He could interpret the dream that Pharaoh had. He interpreted and he took action. Now, here's the deal. We know that they stored the grain, getting ready for these days of famine, and then Egypt became wealthy by selling the grain to other people where the famine had hit, and that's how he got promoted to be second in command of Egypt, and you remember that. The funny thing is, the Bible doesn't say what Joseph specifically did to save Egypt about the grain, and we do know they got grain and they stored it away. But then what we see from an archaeological standpoint, and we see from history, and we see from current things, that Joseph did something. This area is man-made. There's a lake out there, and it's, it's ran. This is the Nile on the right side. And this area fl- is a flood area and turns into a lake. And this area is called the Canal of Joseph. The canal of Joseph? Yeah. And this is, you know, obviously Egyptian tradition, but the, the canal has been named like this for thousands of years, the canal of Joseph. It appears, and then when they look back at the, the flood waters of the Nile, there's something they find out during the time of Joseph. The Nile floods every year. Even to this day, flood waters go up and then it, it takes that silt and that richness of the Nile and spreads it out on its farmland around the Nile. And so it's a very fertile area. And then the waters recede and then they, they plant their crops and they produce, you know, everything you can possibly imagine. Cotton and different things of that nature and, and all kinds of agriculture and whatnot. It's a very fertile area because of the flooding of the Nile. What they noticed is that during the time of Joseph, there was a period in which the floodwaters exceeded itself and flooded the area way too much. And there's a series of years that that happened. Now, here's the deal. And you say, what's the big deal about that? In order for Egypt to produce its crops and produce things like cotton or whatever, you have to have the floodwaters go up to a certain level, but it can't go past that. If it goes past that, you'll kill all the animals. You you will not be able to farm there that whole year. So apparently what happened in a series of years, seven years went by where the floodwaters did exactly what they were supposed to do. Then after that, another series of seven years came up where the floodwaters went extremely high. And at that point, Egypt hit a famine because you can't plow, you can't plant anything when the land is flooded overly flooded. There's a clue in Joseph's dream 
if you recall. And he said, when he interpreted the dream for Pharaoh, he saw cattle coming out of the water. And most people missed it, but I think it's a clue to the floodwaters. Cows don't come out of water unless their pasture land is flooded. So in the dream, there's a clue that the Nile is going to flood, overflow and it's going to encompass not only the farmland, but it's going to kill the animals as well. If you kill the animals, kill the farmland, and it's just too murky, then you can't plant and you have a famine. So this canal that's still there today shifted about 50% of the floodwaters before this happened, and he created a canal and a place where all the water could go, which saved them the first seven years, basically, I guess. And so that canal is still there today. That's what it looks like. They call this Joseph's Canal. And so along with saving the grain, along with understanding that the floodwaters would go too high, Joseph also made a canal where it didn't completely devastate everything and the waters could run off into this area through the canal. Still there today. Amazing. Okay. So there's a lot of archaeological evidence for Joseph in Egypt. They've also found grain barns that are absolutely amazing engineering feats of what he created. I don't have time to go into it, but they've found these things. And Joseph was just absolutely brilliant in storing the grain. And you can see how people would come in, get the grain, and leave. You had to go to a low spot, and the grain would filter down. As the grain was in, in these big vats, stone, it would go down. And so the newest grain went to the very bottom. And then the later grain would came on the top and it would just filter down and you would go deep down inside and then get your grain and then come back up the stairs. So it would shift the grain from the newest to the oldest going down like that. It was absolutely engineering feat was brilliant. And he did that. Okay. This gave Israel protected status among the Egyptians. This gave Israel agreements and assurances by Egypt to be protected. This gave Egypt, or, or Israel the acceptance of their people group in the land of Egypt. And then this happens. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king, or new pharaoh, over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. So there's the link that Moses is trying to establish, and that's why it's important to understand Joseph, okay? This idea of there arose a new pharaoh, this is we're talking about probably the 13th dynasty, okay? The pharaoh in the 13th dynasty around this period of time is not Ramses. Ramses is way too late. He comes way too late. All the movies and things like that get that totally wrong. The guy you're looking for at the end of the 13th dynasty is this guy. It is Pharaoh Dutimos. He is the Pharaoh of the Exodus and the last of the Pharaohs of the 13th dynasty. After the 13th dynasty, the Hyksos come in as a punishment to the Egyptians. And do you know who the Hyksos is? They are Semitic. There was a period of time where Egypt is ruled by Semitic people and they came into Egypt and they just took over. There was no opposition. There was no other Egyptians fighting in them. They just came into Egypt and took over for centuries, and they're called the Hyksos. We might say they're the Amalekites, but they were a Semitic people that took over Egypt. 
Pray tell, tell me why or how a Semitic people could come into Egypt and not have a fight with Egyptian pharaohs or the Egyptian army. You know why? They're dead. They're at the bottom of the Red Sea. There is no Egyptian army. And part of the punishment that God put on Egypt, not only killing their army and killing the, the, these the Dudamos, but to have a Semitic people, a shepherd kings are what they called, come in and take over Egypt for centuries. It wasn't centuries later until another Egyptian pharaoh got on the throne after the Hyksos. Amazing. But nonetheless, this new pharaoh that comes on the 13th dynasty, Dudimos, when it says, who did not know Joseph, that's a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of saying something. It's a functional term. It's not like, oh, I forgot about this guy, Joseph. I don't know who you're talking about. Uh Uh-uh. It's not about forgetting anybody. It's this, and it's a Hebraic way of saying, I'm going to take functional action against the agreement. Do you remember in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, even the thief on the cross, he says a Jewish idiom to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You'll have this term, remember me, given from people to God. What it means when they say that to God, or the thief on the cross says it to Jesus, it doesn't say, hey, try to remember and put put a string on your finger to remember me. That's not what he's talking about. It means take positive action for me when you get into your kingdom. That's what remember me means. And it says when God remembered, that's a Jewish idiom of saying God is now going to actively do something positive, whether it's a nation of Israel or an individual, positively. So when someone says in Hebrew, I forget, it means I'm going to take negative action against you. So it's not like the Pharaoh says, I don't know who this Joseph guy is. No, no. His policy, once he gets established as this dictator, is I am now going to null and void any agreement Egypt has with Israel. No longer will Israel have a protected status. No longer will I agree to any agreements or assurances that Joseph or any prior pharaoh made. No longer will we allow foreigners to be in Egypt. And what you're seeing with that statement there is that Pharaoh Dudimos is instituting a new policy initiative, a national policy, by the way, that will, it's not just in his term, it will be perpetual in Egypt. And the goal is to wipe the Jews out. And he's going to do it subtly at first which is exactly what the deep state tries to do. When the deep state tries to target a people group to wipe them out, they start first by subtly doing it. They just don't first come out with genocide. They subtly start acting like we have a problem. Now here's where we start connecting dots to today. Verse nine. And he said to his people, the Egyptians, look, the people of the children of Israel... That's a key phrase right there. There's propaganda going on right now. I'll explain it. Are more and mightier than we. Okay, this is Goebbels in Nazi Germany first putting out the propaganda against the Jews. Egypt in history will become the first anti-Semitic country. 
Now we have hundreds of anti-Semitic countries, don't we? We even have anti-Semites here in America, don't we? We've got some congresswomen that are anti-Semitic. Here's the propaganda. Let's go through the propaganda that Goebbels right here is putting out about the Jews. He says, the people of the children of Israel, that phrase right there is dehumanizing the Jews. He's dehumanizing them. What do you mean by that? Instead of saying, hey, the Jews, he depersonalizes it, and it's a pejorative that categorizes them as this group here. That's what Nazi Germany did. This group is causing us problems. This group, not human beings, this group. Today, the propaganda is going against you and I. It's these evangelicals, these fundamentalists, these Bible thumpers are getting in the way of what we want to accomplish. They're the haters. They're the group we got to deal with. You see how it goes? So the first thing you do in propaganda is you dehumanize the individual. And that's what's starting to happen here. Okay? It's a pejorative. And then he comes out with just flat-out lies in many sense. They are multiplying. They are getting very large based on the blessing of God and following the dominion mandate. But he tells them that they're mightier than we are. That's a lie. Israel's not even a military force. Egypt has the military force, and he's saying, they're mightier than us. They can take our military down. That's propaganda. They're going to overrun us. They're going to take over, and they're going to beat our military. That is a flat-out lie. But yet, this is what this pharaoh is saying. See, understand, in propaganda, you have to give a little bit of truth, and then you've got to add the lie to it. So that you can't be just a full-blown lie. You have to add some truth to it to make it credible, right? And so they'll do that. And so the first thing you want to notice in propaganda is you've got to dehumanize somebody. Well, do we see that today? Of course we do. These deplorables. Remember that? In CNN, Don Lemon. These credulous boomer rubes. Remember him saying that and laughing? He couldn't control himself on CNN? Credulous boomer rubes. These hillbillies, right? And then to us, fundamentalists, Bible thumpers, radical Christians, all that stuff is meant to dehumanize us. But for what? Why would they want to dehumanize humans? Take a guess. If you can get people to believe that people are subhuman like what they do in the Middle East. Uh, They'll say the Jews are pigs and apes. Then guess what? If they're not fully human, they don't have any human rights. And we have full assurance that we can attack them and wipe them out because they're subhuman. They're not really human. And that causes people in a psychology mindset to then feel it's okay to attack certain people. And that's what this guy is doing. These tactics by the deep state on Christians and Jews today in the nation of Israel, these tactics, they stem all the way back to Egypt. But let me go further than that. This pharaoh didn't dream this up, and neither did these people today. Guess who is behind all this? Satan. He's the one with the tactics. So when you see tactics repeated that you're seeing in Egypt, and they're being repeated today, it's Satan. This is the deep state of Egypt. 
Somehow, the deep state got into position, and once they're in the position, popped the clutch in Egypt. We're going to finish these Jews off. Don't think for a moment that the anti-Semitism wasn't already brewing there. This individual is just capitalizing on it. But prior to him, all the pharaohs protected the status of Israel and the agreements that were made with the pharaoh and Joseph at the time. So this is a political game of thrones. This is not, you know, some fairy tale. This is exactly what you're seeing today. So, guess what? Let's move into phase one after propaganda. Verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Or The idea of shrewdly in Hebrew is hostile, like BDS today. Lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of a war, false threat, false imagery. The climate's going to, we're going to die in 12 years, Greta Thunberg. We're going to die. We're going to do something in the event of the war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. They're going to attack us. We're not going to have just enemies on the outside. They're going to have enemies on the inside, guys. We've got to pull together and we've got to stop this. You see how the propaganda works? And so go up out of the land. That's another Hebrew idiom, which means to take possession of our land. These Jews are going to take over Egypt, and they, they're, they're going to fight us internally. We're doomed if we let this happen. Let me ask you the, the truth about it. Did Israel want their land? No. What did Israel want? Its own land, the promised land that God gave them through Abraham. They don't want anything to do with Egypt. Their hope and dream was to get back. Joseph told them, when you guys go back into the land, take my bones. That's the truth. But see, the propaganda says, no, no, they're going to they're attack us. They want our land. We've got to do something about this. And so to act shrewdly is to start bringing hostility against them. Okay. So in verse 11, it says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now, the supply cities in movies and stuff, they always have, <laughs> this is such bad history, that the Jews are building the pyramids and stuff like that. And it's like, oh my goodness, the pyramids were before Abraham, for goodness sake. And there's all kinds of anachronistic mistakes that they put in these movies. They built Pithom and Ramses, which were storehouses or military warehouses on the border front of Egypt. That's what they were building, okay? And again, it was in Goshen. It wasn't in the desert. It wasn't in, you know, next to a pyramid or whatnot. Okay, but what was this? This is the first policy after the propaganda. So, like I said, dehumanize them and then start taking their rights away. And so instantly, that class of people were classed in a caste system as slaves, They took away their rights. Free speech, all that stuff's gone now. So think about what the Jews were given up. They were forced on, you had to give up your own land, you had to give up your job, because now you're going to work for Pharaoh, and you can't do your own job and farm and raise cattle on your own, so you're going to work for the state. So they can't farm, they can't have their own economy anymore. You see what the deep state's doing? It takes away your private property, it takes away... Your ability to work, it wants you to be dependent on the state. You're catching the parallels? Make you dependent on the state. And so now the Jews, since they can't work, can't farm, they have to rely on the state to feed them, who's enslaving them. 
The only way they're going to get the food is through enslavement. You think that's what the deep state wants? They want totalitarian government with everyone dependent on the government, and they will control the resources that go out to the people. Thank you very much. Everybody I see in politics is doing that and promoting that. They say they're not a dictatorship, but I can tell you this. If they got full control, that's exactly what they would do. It's the same thing you see in Egypt. Took away the Jews' freedom and made them a slave labor class. Now, what they're going to do as they're afflicting them is this is what he's hoping. It's a subtle genocide. What do you mean? Pharaoh didn't just come out and say, hey, let's kill every Jew on the planet. He's going to do it secretly. So you'll never know. Pray to you, how is he going to do it secretly? Well, the first thing is I'm just going to make them work hard. And that will kill them. That will kill them little by little. It's a slow process, but we'll choke them out. And we'll just kill them with hard labor. They can't go home because they're so tired. They won't be able to populate. And we'll just make it so hard on them, they'll die an early death. Soft euthanasia. You know, so that's how they're practicing it. But check this out, verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. It had the opposite effect. Russia, Russia, Russia. Who did they look bad? You see what I'm saying? When you try to perpetrate lies and do evil against you, it actually backfires on you. Collusion, impeachment. You're seeing real-world examples of what was going on in Egypt. Try to attack good, and then you pay the price for it. You look bad. And it backfired on Pharaoh. I'm sure he's ticked off at this point. Do these kinds of people go away? Well, we failed there. Let's just forget it. No. We're going to impeach for this. We're going to do more. They won't stop. They're unrelenting. So Pharaoh comes up with another idea. The next verse. And they were in dread of the children of Israel because of the propaganda. So in verse 13, the the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. This is ruthless type of, this is kind of like concentration camp type of behavior, right? And they made their lives bitter with, uh, with hard bondage. In mortar, in brick, and all manner of service in the field, all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And the idea is we can't kill them now in this first phase, so we're going to have to double down and increase it even more and see if we can kill them. This is part of what a totalitarian regime does. When it has a group that they don't like, that goes against the system. The first thing they will say is, well, let's do this. It will seem like it's okay and there's nothing wrong with it on the surface, but in essence, we know what their intent is. So when, like, you see, hear people from the globalist community say, we need to reduce the population, what does that mean? It means that they don't care if people die. They want to reduce the population, just like Pharaoh did. Do you think China cares if several hundred thousand people get wiped out by the coronavirus? They could care less. The Chinese government is just like the Egyptian government. They don't care if people die. So what? We need a few less bodies in their mind. That's Egypt. That's satanic. But understand this, folks, and I have to leave it this. We'll pick up this next week. When the deep state figures out who's against them, when the deep state figures out, we got a problem here, 
They will propagandize the person. They will lie about the person. They will make stuff up about the person using the fake media. I'm sure there was a fake media here. And then subtly try to attack. You know, certain people in our country, their identities have been erased off of social media. You know that there's people that have just disappeared? Do you know that there's people that oppose the deep state? And they're no longer with us anymore? That's Egypt. So Egypt starts this process. And then they narrow the focus. Guess who public enemy number one is today? Christians and Jews. Not the fake Christians, the fundamental Christians who believe the Bible. That's who public enemy number one. And look at what they're doing to us. Marginalizing us. Propagandizing us. Oh, they hate everybody. They're racist. They're xenophobic. They're, they're homophobic. They're, they're Islamophobic. They're this. They're that. Why are they doing that? Because eventually they're going to dehumanize us and then start taking our rights away. And if you can dehumanize us, no one will care if you take our rights away because we're just nothing but animals. And then it moves into, well, if they're just nothing but animals, what does it matter if I pull a gun on them? What does it matter? They're just animals. That's how the Nazis could easily pull the trigger and kill Jews standing at the grave and just blow their heads off and not think twice about it because they had dehumanized them. This is what's happening here. You must be aware of it. You must see the parallels. But what's going to happen? God is going to raise people up. He's going to raise one up in particular, Moses. And Moses is going to have the guts to get finally in Pharaoh's face and say, it's coming down. You've been doing this, you're going to pay. You mess with the bull, you're going to get the horn. And I'm going to tell you, in a lot of ways, you'll see yourself in Moses' life. It's not a life that you and I will choose. We don't choose to take a stand against evil because you will pay a price, as Moses did. You will pay an awful price. But what other choice do we have in the face of evil? What other choice do we have in the face of people lying and propagandizing? The only thing you can do at that point is take a stand for the truth and be willing to pay the cost. Phil Haney did. Phil Haney stood against the deep state of Egypt, so to speak. Took a stand. Paid the ultimate price. Testified in front of Congress. All the Islamic ties to terrorism told them, this is what's happening, and your government is not paying attention or doesn't care. He was willing to do it. Is there a price for telling the truth? Of course there is. There always is. But what do you fear? Do you fear man or do you fear God? I told my class this morning, the disciples were told to shut up. Don't say anything. Don't speak about this man, Jesus, because the deep state in Israel was there too. And the deep state didn't want them telling the truth about what they were up to. Money, power, fame. The same things were going on back in Israel as there are today, right? Same thing, deep state. And what did the disciples say? They said, you tell me. He to- they told the establishment. They told the deep state. You tell me whether it's to- we are going to obey God or obey man. And we're going to obey God. Phil obeyed God all the way to the end. And look what these final words he said in one, one of the publications I read. He said, what's at stake is our sovereignty, the right to choose the form of government we would live under, 
This is a moment that's generational, and now is the time for us to stand up and take our place in representation of government as ordained by God and to reaffirm the values that our country was founded on and choose life, not death. Folks, there's a Pharaoh in our country that doesn't know Joseph. And what I mean by that, spiritually speaking and metaphorically speaking, is there's a group of people that do not like our Judeo-Christian values. And they have forgotten or are taking action against the people who follow Joseph. Joseph is a typology for Christ. Did you know that? Those who adhere to biblical morality, biblical views, biblical ethics and whatnot. We have a Pharaoh now. You can't see him. He's there. The spirit of Antichrist is moving in our country And so the question is, will you be like Moses? Will you allow yourself to be raised up and be a truth giver to the deep state? Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.